views and opinions of the guests or hosts are not the views of the East Cleveland Library staff or management. Any complaints or comments should be sent to the E.B. Smith Project, LLC, at ebsmithmedia at gmail.com. Good afternoon. We're here at WEBS and the E.B. Smith Project at the Ichabod Fluelman Studios, East Cleveland Public Library at 14101 Euclid Avenue. And our guest today is um, Mr. M.A. Shaheed. And we're going to talk about uh, the avant-garde movement in uh, what everybody would understand as jazz. And we want to talk about the Eilers, Albert Eiler and Donnie Eiler, as well as we're going to bring up some other artists in that, you know, Henry Grimes, Sonny Mary. It's, it's a few. Uh, what, one of the things I noticed uh, when I was speaking with people, nobody really knows about Al and Albert Eiler and what he uh, was about. So give us uh, a little bit about Al. Where did you meet him at? And I know you went to school with him, uh, his brother or somebody, right? Yeah, I went to school with his brother, Donnie. Uh, we used to call him Donnie, Donnie Eiler. And uh, we fooled around, you know, just doing teenage stuff. And at some point, um, we both started getting kind of serious about music. And in fact, I bought a tenor saxophone, a Busher 400 from a guy by the name of Sidney Jenkins. And uh, I met Albert through Donnie one time when Albert came here to Cleveland from Europe. He was in Stockholm and, and in Denmark, Copenhagen, playing with Cecil Taylor. And he had done some recordings, some early recordings uh, in, in Stockholm, Sweden. This was back in the 63, 64, in that, in that period of time, 62. And um, uh, Albert asked to play my horn, and I just started with the horn at Busher 400. He had a Selmer Mark IV. And so what happened is he, um, he came and over to my parents' house at the time, and uh, he asked me to let me let him see my horn. So he took his mouthpiece off his horn, took my horn, and he started playing that horn. And the next day, I sold the horn back to the guy I bought it from and got a bass. You know, it wasn't the same day I got the bass the same day, but I knew I wasn't going to deal with that no more. And that's when he got through with it. You know, and then my father, he was there at the house listening to us play versus Albert playing. And Albert, he would, I think he played for him Moonlight on the Wabash or some standard like that. And my father was like, now he can play. Y'all can't play nothing. Y'all sound like a train wreck. <laughs> that's what he that's what he told us you know that was that was my introduction to albert also um my introduction to ornette coleman was actually through albert uh albert and donnie lived in shaker heights and uh they had a small room where they had like a record player and i remember hearing change of the century by uh ornette yeah. coleman and that was, wow, I said, wow, man, this is some different kind of music here. Mm -hmm. This is different. And I was always a person who could not sing, I could not dance, and I couldn't play third bass. <laughs> so when I heard the new music, we called it the new music at the time. Other people called it avant-garde. We called it the new music. And at the time, what happened is, is that I, uh, 
uh, said, wow, let me see somebody try to dance to this music. You know, I was in favor of not being able to dance because I couldn't. So when I ran to that music, I said, this is completely emotional. You feed off of each other's inspiration, each other's energy. And that's what attracted me to the music. You know, I was not, I went to, I think, took some lessons for the bass maybe once or twice. And I said, I ain't not thinking about that. And I had a good ear, so I could always pick up what was being played and I could match the sound. And, uh, you know, I played different. I played with all fingers rather than two or one. And uh, Albert, uh, when he heard my sound on the bass after a year, a couple of years, so after I had come back from Sweden, he uh, asked Donnie to have me get in the group with them and play some different concerts and different gigs at different places. How many times did you play with Al? At least five times. Right, right. You played here locally with Al? Played locally. I played in uh, New York. I played in uh, Antioch College. And... Um, you know, at the WHK Auditorium, the Lakav concert, which is a concert that I wound up getting paid for about 35 years after the concert took place. You know, this was a group called Revenant, a Reviant, a Revenant Records. They put a box set together with Albert and all of his music that had been recorded up to a particular time. And they had to pay everybody who was on the gig. Mm hmm and uh so i got a check in the mail for a thousand dollars i said man that was like i couldn't believe it man somebody gave me a thousand dollars after about 30 years man that was amazing you know yeah now al he he played for was that esp label yeah well actually i met uh bernard stoneman was the uh, owner of esp records he lived on riverside drive up in new york we went up to his place when albert signed with him and then, you know, a few other people signed. I think Frank Wright signed with him and a few other musicians signed with Bernard. And he didn't have really a lot of money. And I was supposed to write the liner notes to one of Albert's uh, albums. I mean, that never happened because Bernard didn't want to pay me for it. And uh, I wouldn't have charged anything anyway. It was just exposure because I was a poet and a writer all the time, even before I started playing music. So it had been just a way for me to express how I felt about the music and so on and so forth. But anyway, um, yeah, ESP Records was started by Bernard Stoneman. And if I'm not mistaken, Albert was his first musician that he signed after he heard him a club down. I think it might have been Slugs or something in New York. You, you mentioned Al played with Cecil Taylor. Yeah. How long did he play with Cecil? Not long. Well, actually, what happened is that he was in Copenhagen in Denmark. He had just gotten out the Army. And he was in Copenhagen, and it just so happened that Cecil was there. And Sonny Murray was a was a drummer with Cecil, and he Albert wanted to sit in with Cecil, and uh, so uh, Sonny told him to come to the club that night, and he told Cecil, you know, this is a musician, he want to sit in. That Cecil was like, man, I ain't want to hear that. Okay, go ahead on. So when they started playing, Albert broke out his horn and started playing, and it was Cecil stopped and looked around to my man, who is this man? Mm -hmm. You know, and then he started playing with him sitting in because he never really got with him to get paid at some point. Okay. You know, I okay. think he may have on a gig or two, mm -hmm. but he just, you know, that was his breakthrough, mm -hmm. you know, with the avant-garde music because Cecil was already out there in that. Mm -hmm. And so Albert just added his sound, you know, to a sound that was already there. Let yeah. me say Cecil Taylor. Mm -hmm. What was Cecil Taylor's? Cecil Taylor had a claim to fame as far as a musician was concerned. Was he it? was a piano player and he used to play 
uh, off these different chords and something. If you were to think about Cecil then, you would have to think about how uh, uh, the piano player now, I can't think of his Keith name. Keith Jarrett. Keith Jarrett plays. Okay. Because Cecil, you know, he, Keith kind of mimicked uh, 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 Cecil. Right, right. Okay. How long did you remember? Uh, how long had you known Donnie? You and Donnie, you stayed with him. Well, Donnie together. and I, we, we, we hung out. It was we didn't play music together in in the beginning. We were all about a bunch of foolishness. Nope. You know what I mean? <laughs> Chasing the girls, getting high, you know. And then he kept telling me about this brother that he had that played music, mm -hmm. and his and he played a different kind of music. Mm -hmm. And he told me his brother was he had gone to John Adams. He worked at Thompson Products at one time and uh, was a blade polisher, and he won some award playing golf at Adams. And you know that was all I knew about him. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, Albert, when he came here, he, they lived in uh, Shaker. You know, they had a lot of noise uh, ordinances and everything. So he used to take a towel and stick it in his horn mm -hmm. and go in the closet and practice for hours. Okay. He'd be sweating, man, you know, and we would listen, you know, to him. And I was attracted to the music. Right. You know, because there was something there that it was a period of time in, in America where everything was transitioning and people were tired of the racism and the the system as it was, even white people were uh, rebelling against it, like the Weather Underman, the SDS, the, uh, you know, all these different groups, black nationalist groups, Malcolm X, everybody was in rebellion and the music was in rebellion. Right, right. And then when the rebellion stopped, I quit. Right. I no longer wanted to be associated with that. But I considered to be slave music going with his bars and all the rest of that. But the people you had people who were professional musicians who knew all that. I didn't want to learn it. Mm. You know, I, I got my part in that I wanted to play. I expressed myself with that. I had a real good time in that freedom movement. To me, it was a freedom movement with music. Right. And once the freedom stopped, I quit. Right. I no longer was interested in that. And even to this day, I don't listen to music except for that music that that period where I was involved in it because the things have changed. Yeah. Slavery's I, back. Yeah. I think Al, uh, when I was listening to Al, an interview with Al on YouTube, and he was, he was saying that this was the new blues, you know, that's what he referred to. It. Right. It was the new blues, you know, and what kind of, what kind of horn did Al play? He played a tenor. Yeah. He had a Selma, uh, I think it was a Mark four. Mm -hmm. And um, he had this metal, Mouthpiece. Okay. I think it was Autolink. Was that unusual to play with a metal mouthpiece? Yeah. They yeah. gave him a different kind of sound. Yeah. 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 And, you know, then I played with metal strings. Mm hmm. You know, because the strings basically on a, a, a cat gut. Okay. And then they started going to a plastic, mm -hmm. you know, and then they had steel strings. Okay. And I, so I played with the steel strings and I would lower my bridge on the bass so that my fingers could be closer to the keyboard and make it faster movement across the keyboard. Okay. Okay. You know. Who was your who was your favorite bass player? Henry Grimes. I had a bunch of them, man. I liked uh, Charlie Hayden, Henry Grimes. Mm -hmm. uh, what's his boy's name? Scott LeFarrell. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scott LeFarrell played with uh with Arnett, right? He played and with him. He played with a lot of different people, but he died when he was only 21 years old, 21, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So he was a phenom, and there's not a lot of film about him, but he was a real sharp, real sharp dude, man. He was real fast, 
And I got the idea about lowering my bridge to bring the strings closer to the keyboard mm -hmm. because they said that's what Scotty had done. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know it increased the speed. Right. You know? Yeah. Because he played, he, uh, Scotty, one of the records I remember him playing out with Arnett is Double Quartet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. In that era, that's, that was, uh, Arnett was on Atlantic label. Yeah, uh, Albert used to always say when the people when the mu the, the the people change when the music change. Right. Okay. And the mu music started changing when the people started changing back in the seventies. Right. When you had this new group, this out uh, this fusion music, and you know all this stuff, you know, and you had a lot of musicians like Miles, mm -hmm. who uh, he said it gave him more freedom. Right. You know, to have the fusion music rather than and, and, and a lot of the musicians, they stopped playing in the clubs. Right. I know Train hated going back and playing in those nightclubs. Right. Because the people were disrespectful. They right. weren't there for the music. And the artist, he's there expressing himself and somebody's ordering drinks. Some drunk dude gets up and falls in the middle of the thing and that goes on the recording. Nobody want to be bothered with that. Right. You know, that was the end of that. And that era ended. And I, and I, did, a, I did a thing once not that long ago about a question was asked about the, the end of the avant-garde music. And I quoted this thing. There was a group called the Watts 103rd street band mm -hmm. to me was the beginning of the end for the, uh, for the free music, mm -hmm. you know, and you have a lot of guys who went to school and, you know, they didn't really have any respect for the free, free music because they weren't free. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I didn't really listen to any of them. Mm hmm. Mm. You know, really, I put my time in and made my contribution to this music. And when that time ended, I was gone. Yeah. What, one of the one of the things I understand about Albert Eiler is that he's got a even today, he's got a big following in Europe and in Japan, you know. Right. Yeah. A lot of the avant garde music now is followed by the Japanese, the Germans. Right. And, uh, you know, you have records. I think there was this group out of Cleveland called the, uh, uh, they did this record called El Fatiha. What was the name of that group? Hassan played in it. And yeah. You played in it. I played in them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, they, they had a record going selling for $1,500. One of the records that they did sold in Japan or someplace like that for $1,500. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, called the Black Unity Trio. Right. And, um, you know, so they are getting ready to, all of them are still alive, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them are in Miami. Some, I think, I don't know where the other brother is. He could be here. Some they tell, I, mean, I understand that they, uh, a lot of Al's followers here are uh, from the punk rock groups. You know, the, the you know, the newer Rock groups, what they call metal rock. Yeah, yeah. The earlier on, there was a good following of those people. Mm -hmm. And now what happens is you have a uh, an attempt mm -hmm. to reestablish the free music, you know, here in Ohio. I think Columbus is like even more progressive in that area than Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And uh, but that music is gone. Mm hmm. You know, that music is gone. I mean, you know, because it was a music attached to an era of rebellion. Mm. So you can't have the same feeling as you did then as you do now, because the people now are rebelling against anything except freedom. Mm -hmm. They're rebelling against being free. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't like their music. Mm -hmm. And I don't listen to it. All right. Here we are. 
at WEBS, and we're here today with our guest, Mr. Mutawaf Shahid. We're talking about a time when uh, the music was a little bit different than it is now. It was free music, and we liked it. Was the new music was free music, and it was. And we're talking about some of the musicians that uh, played this music from Cleveland. And we had a few names here. Who was the piano player's name? You say it's in Paris now. Oh, uh, that's Bobby Few. He was he was the house piano player at the Ritz Carlton. That's the place where they where Diana and them when they got they murdered them from there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about what about uh, uh, Charles Tyler? We didn't mention Charles Tyler. Charles Tyler. We used to go to his house and practice. He lived on Seventy Fifth in Kinsman, and I used to ride the bus. Uh, I, I didn't have a cover for my bass, so it was just a naked bass, and I was riding the Kinsman bus, mm -hmm. and people was like, oh, he, he just leave him alone. This guy is a nut, man. <laughs> I've never seen nothing like this ever before, <laughs> you know? And they probably was about right, <laughs> you know? So we would go down to Charles's house and practice. There was another brother, Norman Howard. You know, he we all played the same kind of music. Right. And I call it not only new music and free music, but it was rebellious music. Right. Because you were rebelling against every single thing that was status quo here in the time in this country. Mm -hmm. Everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. The haircuts. Everything was rebellion. Yeah. At one time, uh, uh, they you kind of studied the music, right? To study the people. Couple we had a we had a gig that we had at the Gestalt Institute of Psychotherapy. Right. It was at that new building on Superior when it opened up. Mm -hmm. Superior Hill, that it was a real that big tall building still there now. And I don't know, I think Hood got it now, something you <laughs> dig, but anyway, you dig. That was it. And they up on the very top floor, mm -hmm. uh, they they wanted us to play mm -hmm. because they could not understand how we could spontaneously, without rehearsing, play together and make it make sense. Mm-hmm. OK. And uh, there was one part they, they, you know, there were very prominent people in this Gestalt Institute of Psycho Psychotherapy. And one of the guys, he was like the first violinist for the Cleveland Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't going to pay us anything, you know, just, you know, a little bit of nothing, mm -hmm. you know, just, I guess, for whatever. To see what we psychotic, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I was bowing. I had the, the bass and I was bowing with the, with the bow. And at the break. The guy from the, the violinist from the Cleveland Orchestra, he said, well, I see you've had some classical training. I said, yes, I have. You know, yes. <laughs> you know? And anyway, it was well, fun, man. Wasn't there yeah. a classical violinist that played with Al? Yeah, yeah. His name was, uh, he was from, uh, he was a Dutch guy. I can't think of his name right off, right off night, but he was, he played at the uh, Lacave with it. He's on that, he's on that record. I which, can't think of his name. Record? Is this? Uh, in, in the uh, in that box set? Okay. You okay. know they interviewed him, uh, Michelle Samson. Okay. That was his name. He was a violinist. Okay. He was a classical violinist, and then he got with the avant garde because he saw he said it wasn't that much of a leap. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know he felt constrained. You know, also, and he wanted to kind of break loose from that a little bit, but you know he was gonna make money because he was white. Mm -hmm. You know, and he was going to make money anyway because he can always go back and forth. Mm -hmm. But he was good. I, I enjoyed playing with him. Yeah. So you played with him as well. Yeah. Okay. We we had, we had a gig. We, no, it wasn't our gig. We was Coltrane was playing at the Village Vanguard, 
And I had uh, my base with me. I took it to New York. I don't even know how I got there, man. Now to think about it, back then, it was hard to remember from day to day because it was high every day. <laughs> okay, so I can't remember exactly. When somebody told me I want $20, <laughs> I had to give it to them. I said, when was this, man? This was in 1965. Oh, here the $20, man. I know I must owe you because I can't remember. Anyway, there was Sonny Murray, myself, Michelle Samson, Donnie, and Albert. And upstairs of the Village Vanguard, there was this place called the Composer Guild. And I think Paul and Carla Blay or Paul Blay, one of the two of the Blaze, husband and wife people, uh, they had a gig there. So they took a break and they gave us the bandstand. And uh, Train, he came up there. Jimmy Garrison came upstairs. And I was right on the front of the stage with the bass. And I was picking up under the bottom of the bridge. Mm -hmm. And here's the bass right here. And Jimmy was like this, you know, staring at my fingers as I was picking under the bridge. And then... We heard this sound, man. I said, never heard no sound like that before, man. And Sonny Murray had fell off the bandstand with the drums on it. I said, no wonder I ain't never heard no sound like that before, man. Yeah, man. And Train, he came up. He was laying in the back. He was listening. Mm -hmm. In fact, Albert played at Train's funeral. Train, Cold Train requested that Albert be one of the people who play at his funeral. Okay. Okay. I can't remember the song they played, but he did play there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how long was Al in the army? You remember? Did he do the whole four years? Yeah, I think years? he did this one tour, maybe two years, maybe four years. I'm not really sure. But he was in the band. He played in the band. He played in the band. Yeah, right, right. he was in the army. So band. he was quite an accomplished musician. Oh yeah, he yeah. Just he, he, yeah, he, he didn't. You know, the re how you break free is you got to be in bondage. Otherwise, you can't break free. Right. You understand? Right. So he recognized the music that he had been trained in as being in bondage. Okay. Okay. And consequently, his thing was not so much about civil rights. Mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't a black nationalist. Okay. You know, he was a, a, a musician who wanted to break the bonds and the binds of the music that had binded him. Right. And those mission, musicians before him. Eric Dolphin used to call him a spaceman. Okay. He would see Albert walking the club and he'd tell him, oh, here comes the spaceman. Mm -hmm. You know, which was a compliment, really. So how long was Al, how, what, what, what age was it that Al died? I think he was 36. Okay. Yeah, I think he's buried here in Cleveland out at uh, Highland View. So and he, his brother is too. His family is out there, in fact. Okay. His entire family. And Al, how, how old, when, what year was Al born in? Do you remember? I think it's 36, 1936. 1936. Okay. And he died in 70. So what do you think is, in your opinion, is one of the most impactful or important concerts, maybe two concerts that Al played that you can remember? The ones that I played in with him, the, the most dramatic to me was the concert at Yellow Springs. Okay. Antioch. Okay. Antioch College because we played for over two and a half hours mm -hmm. nonstop. Two and a half hours. The audience is spellbound. Mm -hmm. And my bass broke. Mm -hmm. The bridge came off. Okay, so and I'm trying to repair the bass in the process of the concert. So what I did is I just start playing the bass like a drum. Mm -hmm. You know, in the in between trying to fix the bridge, and then I would you know, and it added a whole nother thing to it. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, that was, to me, the most impactful. The next 
we, the next thing, it wasn't a concert. We used to go up to Leroy Jones's house and Mary Baraka when he lived in the village. Okay. Everybody who was anybody used to come there after the clubs closed, and we would play there. Everybody was up there. Pharaoh Saunders, that's the first time I saw Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was there. Alan Shorter, Wayne Shorter's brother. I mean, everybody was there. Man, It was a drum set that stayed on the scene. Mm-hmm. Sonny played up there. Everybody played there. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you play there to daylight, and then you go try to find something to eat if you got any money. Mm-hmm. And that was one of another discouraging things for me. Is like I had never been hungry in my entire life mm-hmm. unless I wanted to be hungry. Mm-hmm. And those Brothers was talking about being hungry and not having no money and living about ratchets and mice and all that. That's not me. Mm-hmm. No, sir. You know, so they deserve all the credit. Mm-hmm. They made all the sacrifices. They deserve all the credit. Right. Okay, I just knew them. We shared some time together in space, and that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. Because I came back to Cleveland. I was playing one time. I had a gig with uh, Norman Connors, and we had a rehearsal. So that night when I arrived in New York, I'm staying on 141st. 143rd, somewhere like that in Amsterdam. It was so hot in there, you had to keep the door open to the hallway. It didn't really help. Then the roaches, you understand, and the mice was running all around in there, you know. What is this noise, man? <laughs> I looked at roaches, they were calling down the right light string, dropping on the table. I said, uh-huh, okay then. <laughs> so the next morning, we got up, we went to uh, Norman's house. And so Norman asked me, he said, man, you know, why don't you stay in New York, man? You can play with me, you know? And I was looking at his house, man. I was seeing all this polished wood floor in Central Park with the beautiful trees. It was all outside his house. And I said, will I be living in a place like this, man? He said, <laughs> I said, no, man, I'm on probation, man. I can't move no way. I got to go back to Cleveland. No. Mm-hmm. Wasn't for me, bro. Mm-hmm. You know, now, whatever that sound like, whoever, whoever it sounds like that too, mm-hmm. that's what it is. What was what was one of the top groups that Al put had together? You remember his one of his it strongest was, groups? Yeah, well, he, he had a, that trio with Gary Peacock, Don Cherry, with that spirit spiritual unity that album he did. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to change musicians a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, he never kept the same guys all the time. Okay, he would change musicians a lot because he was always looking for a different sound. Okay. And different musicians brought different sounds. Okay. So he would change bass players. He had Henry Grimes. Mm-hmm. Well, Henry came here to Case Western one time, and he was talking about, you know, Henry Grimes, you know, he's been in and out of the Mill Hospital mm-hmm. over the years. Right. You know, but he's a brilliant musician. And when I met him there, I told him, I said, man, I thought you was about six foot five, man. The way you played the bass, because he played real strong. He used to have him. He had... Uh, Charles Worrell, he had different guys, different drummers. He had different people. They played at different times. He was not a confrontational kind of guy. Yes. He didn't hardly get any sleep. Oh, no, uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> so here we are. And, and I'm thinking at, uh, at the Ichabod Fruellen Studios at 14101 Euclid Avenue in the East Cleveland Public Library with Mr. M.A. Shaheed. And we're talking about Albert Eiler. And the new music. And this is Blues and Culture. And we'll be right back. 